Hello, and welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers that Radio City Liverpool's 1988 Oodles of Spiffing Goodies competition was introduced by a posh-voiced man called Engelbert, reading out the rules over the top of the Paul Temple theme. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that she remembers, and nobody else ever seems to, is broadcaster and writer Georgie Jameson. Georgie, what you're up to, where can we find it? At the moment, I am developing a website called Suffolk Theatre Website, because I am in East Anglia, that's where I live, in Suffolk. And basically, it's born out of, I used to do an arts and theatre show on local radio, on BBC Local Radio, but I'm not with them now. (laughs) We won't go into that, but I hope to return as a freelancer. But in the meantime, I want to carry on championing I think that I could never say that word, even when I was on the BBC. Local theatre and arts and entertainment, comedy, cabaret, anything that comes under that banner. So I started this website and I shall be starting a podcast soon. And I'm doing some event hosting. And recently, well, it was May, but it still kind of blows my mind. I did an evening with John Cleese, which was extraordinary. And he was charming and we had a ball and I interviewed him for sort of nearly an hour and then we did a Q&A with the audience and fingers crossed we hope to do some more of those with him and other people in the new year so that's the kind of stuff I'm up to you can find me on Twitter or oh, I can't be doing a calling it X it sounds like a late night cable channel that you watch when everyone else has gone to bed it's wrong so yeah you can find me at Georgie Jameson and as I used to say on BBC local radio Georgie with a Y Jameson with an IE that's how you find me that's where I hang out I've tried threads and I forget it's there and I am on Instagram as well but I I go to write and they think oh it wants a picture doesn't it I haven't got any pictures I don't know so you mostly find me on Twitter yes Okay, well, we're hoping that you don't get re-engaged. Well, as I say that, you might really want to be re-engaged as a host of a reboot of your first choice. (laughs) We'll see what judgment you pass on that after we've heard the theme music. Game shot. Now then, I've just slipped out for a minute from the biggest bonanza of sporting scale I've ever clapped eyes on. Down here at the Queen's Hotel in Leeds, we've got 60-odd of the best players I've ever seen in my life. None of your Charlton and your Geoffrey boycotts, mind you. This bunch of lads are kings at those sports you get up and down the land in every pub. There's one fellow who's shown up from Scunthorpe in a 10-gallon Stetson hat, and he's floating coins around in the best game of show opening I've ever happened across. OK, very oddly funky theme there, and the inimitable introduction from Indoor League. Georgie, what was this? Indoor League is extraordinary. It used to come on at lunchtimes. It was Yorkshire Television that made it, and we're talking 1970s here. I don't know whether it went into the 80s, but it was certainly 70s. And it was the sort of thing that you would watch if you were off sick from school, because quite frankly, there'd been school programmes all morning and there was nothing else apart from this and Farmhouse Kitchen. Indoor League was introduced by Fred Truman, who'd have a pint in one... This is lunchtime television, right? He'd have a pint in a proper pint glass with a handle and a pipe 
He was smoking a pipe and he was regularly, I believe, voted Pipe Smoker of the Year, which is an extraordinary thing that they used to give out every year as well. Pipe Smoker of the Year. And they'd made up this studio in Yorkshire Television to look like a pub, only it didn't look anything like a pub. It looked like a studio that was meant to look like a pub. And they were playing pub games. They were playing skittles and bar billiards and darts and shove halfpenny. And they were all drinking and smoking. And when you watch it back now, you think, this was on at lunchtime. <laughs> and he'd go into the break. It had the most incredible theme tune. That ding, 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 ding. I mean, it's just the best music. And he would go into the break with our civvy. And that's how he'd end the show as well, our civvy. <laughs> it was just the most dour-faced chap. But it was hysterical now when I think about it. And there was they'd have ladies' darts and they would be in a separate bit as if they were in the snug. It was like that, like, you know, when ladies weren't allowed into the main bar type of thing. And they all had massive hair and that looked like it had been lacquered within an inch of its life in almost like a beehive and those 70s nylon dresses on. Just drinking and smoking and pretending they were in a pub and playing dominoes. And quite clearly just in a studio at Yorkshire Television. It was just bizarre. But I remember it with great fondness, possibly because of that theme tune. Because it was such a brilliant piece of music. It was so bonkers. <laughs> I loved it. Well, it looks really odd when you watch it now. But the thing is, to anyone, you know, who was sort of around our age, Ooh. would just remember the era. That was what it was like when you were told, go and see if your granddad's ready to come home yet. And you go in <laughs> to the part of the pub that they were in and they'd all be playing games like Ooh. that. It was exactly yeah. like that. It was like somebody had invited the bar bit from a school fair and there was a sign saying nobody yeah. under 18 passed this point into your front room yeah. in fact it's just struck me there's a link with in the most recent one of these when Gabby Hutchinson Crouch was talking about Catherine her school ghost and I mentioned the beast that was adjacent to my primary school that <laughs> supposedly lived outside the church's sort of social hall quite often that was a place where games like that were played so was the beast in there playing dominoes possibly possibly and they all took it dreadfully seriously as well I mean, they would be, oh, so-and-so's beaten so-and-so at dominoes in the first round and they've knocked out a favourite. And, you know, there was like leagues. It was indoor league. There were leagues, you know, and there was ladies' darts and there was the bar billiards and it was proper competitive. But they would flick from one sport to another. So you never really quite, you never followed like a full match of pro-celebrity dominoes or wherever it might be. I mean, maybe it was just a very, very early version of Eurosport. But I thought you were going to say Euro and... trash for a second. <laughs> Which, well, in some ways, it's like something it you would have seen on an insert in Eurotrash. Yeah. If, if this had been made somewhere in, I don't know, Scandinavia, it would have popped up on Eurotrash. Yeah. So look what they watch at lunchtime. And the only people watching it back then, you know, back in the 70s, people did come home for lunch. And there was more of a culture of drinking, going to a pub and having a pint and a pie at lunch. But for me, obviously, I only ever saw it when it was school holidays. Or if you were off sick from school and you think, oh, brilliant indoor leagues on I'll watch people playing shove eight me <laughs> it's just <laughs> and now when you think about how they don't like to show anyone smoking and obviously there's no cigarette adverts anymore and now any adverts for booze has please drink responsibly along the bottom 
And there they all were, just down in pints at Yorkshire Television. I assume they were real. I can't imagine Fred Truman would be messing about with coloured water. That was probably, that was best bitter in that tankard. He wouldn't have mucked about. I was going to say, before we move on to something else, he was quite an odd man. And it must have been real booze. But looking into it, I keep finding multiple instances of, this shows you what a bizarre figure he was for his time. Just how things were in those days. There seems to be multiple instances of him standing up against, because he was a really, really successful professional cricketer. And he seems to, when when he's been on tours, he stood up against, you know, sort of the polite racism that was around. It was like, you can't tell me who to fraternise with and mm. would then say something incredibly offensive about the people he was defending. He seems yeah. to have been an equal opportunities offender, which I suppose in some ways, I can't say whether that counts in his favour or not, but no. yeah, he was a peculiar man, but it really does, like you say, the smoking, the drinking makes it the atmosphere of it. It reminded me of the way the word in the early 90s was the pitch for that was, it's like a nightclub at yeah. home for you. Home. And this is like a pub at home for you. Yeah. It's exactly, you can almost feel the smoke coming out of the screen. I seem to remember as well that when he would go, when he would do the links or go into a break, they would also sometimes, there would be a big cardboard cutout of a curvaceous woman, like a barmaid, with enormous boobs kind of spilling out of a blousy top with lots of blonde hair piled up on her head. But it was a big cardboard cutout of one. So there was just quite a lot of casual Could they just not afford well. a real one? No, probably not. Probably, I doubt very much that anyone would want to stand there and be lent upon with Fred Truman breathing booze and fags down well, in the head. <laughs> I will say it does achieve something I thought was almost impossible, and it makes Bullseye look like a paragon of sophistication. It's like something Tony Wilson would have commissioned next <laughs> yes. to Fedor League. <laughs> yes, yeah. And like you say, he was a very successful cricketer, a Yorkshire legend, and there is, I believe. I've seen it on Twitter, so it might, it's probably on YouTube. Someone has pieced together a montage with that incredible funky music underneath it of him saying Appen and Arsivi and Aop and Reckon and all that, just stuff like that. Just all the, if you ever want cheering up, put that on. There was a lot around that time, though, of programmes that were basically, I suppose, what we could call working men's television, mm. as in working men's clubs, because obviously the most famous ones are the Wheel Tappers and Shunter's Social yes. Club, which is yeah. sort of like the alternative entertainment to this, but you've also got things like Joker's Wild, which I think was on at lunchtime. And they would all smoke. Yeah, they would all sit there. Barry Cry would, he'd have a cigarette on. There would be Ash trays on the desks for the guys doing the gags. Dawson used to do it. John Cleese would go on Joker's Wild and be hilariously irreverent as if he didn't understand what was going on. It petrified him going on there. I've watched old clips of it and certainly Barry would have a cigarette on pretty much constantly. (laughs) But they didn't. You watch old episodes of Parky. Guests would come on and there was the carafe of water and the glass and an ashtray and they would smoke. Or he didn't. I don't know whether he did, but he certainly didn't while he was interviewing. But guests would smoke, chaining it, really, whilst they were on. I'm sure Kenneth Williams would sit and smoke while he was on. I've seen other people smoking on there. I think Eric Morecambe. Did Eric Morecambe have his pipe when he was on there? Probably. He was probably after the Pipe Smoker of the Year title. He got that. The highly coveted Pipe Smoker of the year award can you imagine giving that out now there used to be all these rear of the year pipe smoker of the year stripper of the year (laughs) it's extraordinary 
accolades that they gave out in the 70s. Can you imagine doing that now? There'd be Lisa Goddard or whoever had got it with her bum in the sun looking over her shoulder, probably having it presented to her by Mike and Bernie Winters or something. The weirdest thing about Indoor League is, do you know who created it? It was a gentleman called Sid Waddell, who was a Cambridge graduate who just had a... I'm going to say he had a knack for television, not just with entertainment like this. One of the first things he created was, speaking of Michael Parkinson, cinema, the very highbrow Granada film review show. But he also, he produced Mop and Smith, The Flaxton Boys, Jossie's Giants, which he wrote. Jossie's Giants, he wrote Jossie's Giants. He wrote a novel called Bedroll Bella about a that WH Smith refused to stock and right in the middle he came up with this and also it was as an offshoot of this that he was really the person who popularised darts on the television which oh, yes, was absolutely. just a, apparently by all accounts was just a it wasn't even a niche sport up to that point it's just something that people did in the pub and he made it into the big television event that it became well his commentary at the dart I mean I love the darts I mean I proper love the darts and the snooker you can tell the level of sporting prowess with me. I love darts and snooker. His commentary was, it was poetry. He was a wordsmith. He was like the Les Dawson of darts, Sid Waddell. He had that way with words. It was beautiful and it was bonkers and it was florid and wasn't what you expected from darts commentary. And now they named the main prize that it's the Sid Waddell Cup when they win the world championship. I should have known that because I've read his autobiography. But for some reason I had William G. Stewart in my mind, but he was producer on Bless This House. I don't know why I got Indoor League of Bless This House muddled up. Well, probably. A, there's a Sid involved in both and B... <laughs> Sid in Bless's House probably played darts and Shavately oh, yeah. and Backgammon more than once, I would say more than once per episode. Yeah. Oh, I would have thought so. I mean, this is, I think the best way to describe Indoor League is it. It's like the Waddington Games compendium for <laughs> someone who was too slosh to read the rules of Backgammon. <laughs> It's yeah. like, is there something I can throw? Yeah, I'll do yeah. that. <laughs> I'll do that then. Can you imagine trying to play dominoes when you're drunk? It's just, I just, because oh, I'm seeing spots in front of my eyes. Yeah, you should be. Well, do you think, A, it could ever be brought back in the same way that it was, and B, that you should host it if it Oh, I'd love to host it. I'd love to host it. I don't smoke. I mean, now if you brought it back, you'd have someone with some kind of fruit-flavoured gin in an enormous goldfish bowl glass and a vape. I don't like the idea of vaping. I like the idea of coming on television with an enormous gin and tonic and introducing people playing darts. I, I like that idea. As if I was some sort of busty, blousy barmaid. I could do myself up like Bet Lynch or something like that. Well, if there's any producers listening who've already bagsied you for that... <laughs> You might have just taught yourself out of being cast as the lead in your next choice, which is something that I had completely forgotten about and I can't believe I had done. Oh, the little lights come on. Fasten your seatbelt. Well, I will if I can. I've had too much lunch. Can you manage? Do you know, I've never seen anyone work so hard as you. All the way over, all through lunch. I thought to myself, I bet he's on a business trip. Yes, I thought you were. No, no, I'm on holiday. Yes, it is my first trip to America, uh, but I think you know what it's... Oh, now, what is that? Ooh, bumpy, I don't like it. What is it? A cloud? Oh, yeah. 
Now, see, the wind has gone all white. Oh, there we are, blue again. That's better. Oh, you know, we are beginning to come down. There it is. Ah. Yes, it is my first flight. Well, no, it's not actually my first flight because I flew to the Channel Islands once, but I didn't like it. Okay, that was a bit of Joyce Grenfell's first flight monologue, but not done by Joyce Grenfell. Georgie, who was it? That was Maureen Lippman. She did a show which ran in the West End and then there was a BBC version of it recorded in the studio and a DVD was released of it. It was called Rejoice and there was a point there she was everywhere as Joyce Grenfell and she had this show celebrating Joyce Grenfell's life and comedy and basically her story really and Maureen Lippman did this incredible impersonation of her not just her voice but physically the way that she did her hair the clothes that she wore the way she manipulated her face and did the voices and we all know Joyce Grenfell I say we all know people like me know Joyce Grenfell and we know she was in the St Trinian's films and then she did have a BBC series and famously would do the monologues as if she was the primary school teacher and George don't do that and and all that there was so much more to Joyce Grenfell so many more layers and I didn't realise that until I watched Maureen Lippman do her show Rejoice and how incredibly successful Joyce Grenfell was with her own show in the West End. And then she took it to Broadway and she toured and travelled around America and Australia extensively. I think she toured around Australia five, six times with all these characters, not just, you know, stately as a galleon, not just, as I said, you know, the primary school teacher with George Don't Do That. She did these really incredible observational comedy. Before anyone knew what observational comedy was, she was always watching, always listening, and she would draw on real life. And it's incredibly well-researched, Rejoice, and Maureen Lippman is brilliant as her. And in the version that I've got on DVD, the BBC version, Dennis King, who actually lives in my neck of the woods, incredible pianist and composer and musician, he is her accompanist in it and adds to the story. It's just marvellous, but that first flight, that clip there, is so progressive. She never interacted with anyone else on the stage. It was always her and you filled in the other characters. And it's a lady who's flying for the first time. She's flying to America. She hasn't seen her son for five years. She's not met her grandchildren or her daughter-in-law. And as the story unfolds and she's chatting to a businessman beside her, the plane's starting to come down and she's a bit like, oh, I can feel it coming down. She's quite nervous about the feet, you know, a bit of turbulence and so forth. But she's relaying the story and it becomes apparent that her son has married an Afro-American and therefore her daughter-in-law is black. She doesn't use that word because back then they used other words that aren't... She doesn't use a very offensive word, but it's not a word we would use now. And therefore her grandchildren, she's got two grandchildren, and she keeps saying, I hope I do it all right. I hope I get it right. And it's so lovely. It's such, it's funny, but it's so touching. Because she talks about, I wish they were back in England. And then she said, well, maybe I don't, because people are very narrow. They have little lives. And she quite clearly is worrying about any racism that they might encounter, as what she describes in the sketch as a mixed marriage. It's very self-aware and very ahead of its time. It's so beautiful. 
so beautifully done but it really really is ahead of its time because she talks about she had an argument with someone at her church who said you know I look in the mirror and I'm pink and they look in the mirror and they're brown we're not the same and she said I told her we are all the same we might everyone looks different but inside we are all fundamentally the same we're all people and I was watching this again recently and thought Wow, that's, I believe, from her show that she took to the West End and Broadway, the Joyce Grenfell Requests the Pleasure. That was in the 50s. So forward thinking, just as a piece of social commentary. But it has some lovely, lovely laughs in it as well. But never at anyone's expense. It was never cruel. But what she's talking about, I mean, wow. It is just, you should show it to people who want to do character comedy or drama students, actually, as an absolute example of how to write and perform something that has social commentary about it, but is funny and warm and engaging and not cruel in any way. I think it's extraordinary. Oh, she was absolutely so far ahead of her time. Joyce Grenfell reminds me in a lot of ways of Gerard Hoffnung, who, this was by a couple of decades he missed out, but Joyce Grenfell just missed the mass media age. And I think because Mm. of that, there's a feeling that in sort of the view of the wider industry, now she belongs to the past. And yet what she was doing, like what he was doing, was so far ahead of its time. And I always think of, I'm not sure whether it was the very first thing on the BBC Third programme, but it was certainly one of the first things. And it was later, repeats on the first day of Radio 3 when they switched over. She did the talk called How to Listen, including How Not To, How You Ought To and How You Won't, which is so resonant even now. And it's about people listening to Wilder Set, but it is about the behaviour of the audience even now. It's so, so prescient and yet so of its time as well. And I think one thing that people might not know is that she was actually from a very well-heeled background and being presented as a debutante at Buckingham Palace. Yeah, very privileged. And yet, yeah. like you say, she developed this. It was never overtly political in either direction. Yeah. It was just against people who were wrong or were mm. incompetent. Yeah. Or I shudder to think how Penny Mordaunt would fare if she ran up against her on a Sunday morning political oh. show. Now, she was so waspish without being unkind. Yeah. Just absolutely tore strips off people and put them in their place mm. just by holding a mirror up to them very politely. Yeah. And like you say, she came from a, yeah, a very privileged background. Her mother was American, but they were married into the Astor family. So, yes, very, very well connected. And a lot of her sketches were centred around very posh drinks, parties, cocktail parties and weekend parties in the country. Let's all go down to Cheltenham type of thing. But that's where she did all her incredible observation of people flirting or people breaking up or people being bored by someone or being in raptures with someone. Her physical comedy as well. There's one where she's doing about four different characters at this rather smart cocktail party and one lady she's miming that she's got a drink in her hand but she never gets any of the nibbles she never gets any of the eats because she can't negotiate it and then everything they offer her she obviously doesn't want to eat and she goes um what is this and 
Oh, no, thank you. And you never find out what it is, but quite clearly it wasn't to her taste. She just flits around the stage as a young debutante. And she's this rather sort of smart, sassy New York woman who's talking about her therapist, who she quite clearly is having an affair with. Then there's this lady who's come over from, with her husband to move back to the UK from Kenya. There's another woman who's very sort of Celia Johnson in that kind of, you know, she's got a cigarette and a holder type of thing, very sort of private lives. or And she's playing all these characters all at the same time just flitting from one to the other and it's so clever and so sharply observed she was amazing and Maureen Lippman as her I think she brought my DVD says 2004 so the show in the West End must have run before that sort of probably late 90s I believe it was around 1987 to the early 90s the first run of it oh really I've been looking into the because there's very little about Rejoice out there which is the name of the stage show which is a brilliant pun isn't it such a great name I guess my DVD must have come out years later it was a reprint or something because it says 2000 now I think about it, yeah, it was much earlier. I think there was a VHS originally, which is, you know, that is like something from another age of VHS of a stage show. But apparently, as far as I can tell, its origins of it, I mean, because Maureen Lippman's had this, I think people just remember her for the BT ads, which I never really liked as, you know, like a 12-year-old or whatever. You know, she started off in fairly radical theatre. She was in one of the first productions of The Knack and How to Get It, and is in a couple of now very culty late 60s, early 70s films and then went into more serious acting. She had that sitcom about face on ITV, which is a bit like Victoria Wood Presents, but this seems to be... It's only me that remembers this. Channel 4, when it first started, when you thought you had to watch every second of Channel 4, (laughs) it was like incumbent on you because it was new. They did a pilot for a series that never happened called The Green Tie on the Little Yellow Dog, which is supposedly the anti The Good Old Days, whereas, you know, The Good Old Days took basically modern performers and put them in... That yeah. sort of Victorian musical Doing setting. Mary Lloyd and stuff, yeah. But this was reviving the material in a modern context. Mainly late musical days. So, you know, there were a lot of monologues, obviously, like the title suggests. But Maureen Lippman did Joyce Grenfell's The Committee, from what I can remember as herself rather than as Joyce Grenfell. Right. And it sort of gradually evolved out of that. But like you say, for a while she was on everything promoting it. When I say promoting oh. it, not just coming on and saying, hello, Jonathan Ross, come and see my show, everyone. Doing yeah. bits from it and talking very eloquently about Joyce Grenfell you know she was promoting it as in living and breathing it and I wish more people would aspire to do that really rather than just hold up a QR code or whatever they do now this is it yeah Maureen Lippman had that sitcom called Agony didn't she yes she she did yes yes which had some of the first male gay characters on television I would like to believe yes I believe I believe it did there's a bit where Rejoice like I say it charts her life pretty much from from about 18 really and doesn't bother with she talks a little bit about her childhood and her mum and dad but it's mostly from when like you say when she was a debutante but in the war she entertained with Ensa she went out and entertained the troops and because it was her and her monologues she didn't have and there was a pianist she didn't have set she didn't really have props or costumes so she went to very remote places and they were talking about the smallest concert she did was in the doorway the sort of flaps of a medical tent with just three soldiers in bed who'd been injured and she just did the show for them in the the folds as you open up the tent she went 
all over with it. And some of that stuff that she did was, and I hasten, I feel odd using this word, it was slightly risque, but in such a, such a, a really sweet, modest way. And it was only risque because it was Joyce Grenfell. There's a lovely sketch where she's a service woman, a Cockney service woman, who's talking to her friend Cheryl, and she's talking about being taken out dancing to the palais with this bloke. And then she sits down and she's talking like this and she looks at her leg and she goes, oh, no, like that. She quite clearly got a ladder up the back of her stocking. And she goes, oh, if you knew what I had to do to get these. And I thought, crikey, <laughs> Joyce Grenfell. And it gets a really big laugh and she doesn't have to say any more. And she's talking about this guy who takes a dancing and he holds you really close, you know, so you can't breathe. And it's nice. And <laughs> And he said, oh, I got provocative eyes and an enigmatical smile. And it's just so charming. But that little gag about, oh, I've got a ladder in my stockings. And if you knew what I had to do to get these. I thought, crikey, that's a bit near the knuckle for Joyce Grenfell. But I should imagine the servicemen laughed like anything at that. It's probably pretty, but even more so because it was her. Because you think of her being quite straight laced. But she wasn't at all well absolutely not because i really love i only remember at the time sort of these being repeated around the time i was sent to bed which was she had the bbc2 show in the 70s where the remarkable thing about it is a lot of her peers were i would say when you look back now struggling to adapt to the modern age of television you know they still had the shows running so it was all getting very old-fashioned hers were like somebody like mike harding would have had on the bbc2 show you know the people are just before alternative comedy when you watch them now there's jokes about the upcoming computer age and privacy when you know computers were big things with spinning tapes <laughs> yeah taking up the entire floor of a warehouse there's yeah, digs at mary white houses all kinds of things like that they are remarkable shows although the main mm. thing i remember of her from my very early childhood is that she was always face, them, face, the, face music, the music the bbc two panel show mm. where they had the dummy keyboard which i yeah. still stand by my assertion as a very young child it was the stupidest thing ever and they were just <laughs> pretending that they knew what he was playing. Somebody had told them the answer. Because at that point, she'd had a problem with her eye. And she was, Joyce Granville was a Christian scientist, so she didn't... Oh, she tried to refuse treatment, didn't yes, she? Yes, she did. But they did get her into the... It's at Moorcroft, isn't it? The, the, the big eye hospital in London. But she lost sight in one eye. And that's when she wore those rather thick glasses as she got older. And then she started doing things like face the music because she could no longer really perform on stage and so she became a regular on that panel show but she was incredibly well read she knew her music she was a very intelligent very intelligent woman the very first time she was sort of spotted to do something in a review was she went to a a cocktail party again with her husband after she'd been to she was president of her local women's institute and she'd been to a talk and it was a talk about how to make flowers out of husks and things that you could find on woodland floors. And she did a bit of this talk for everyone at this party, taking off this woman who'd done this typical W. Well, I, I don't know. I'm not. I don't belong to the WI, so I don't know if it's typical. But possibly back then it was a typical WI talk, and had them all roaring with laughter. And there was a producer there who said, "Will you come and do that?" Or who wrote that sketch? And she said, "Well, no, no one. I've just, I've just made it up. You know, I'm just doing 
what I've been to tonight. And he said, will you write it down and will you come and perform it in my review? And that's how it started. Just literally hanging about with the right kind of people and being naturally amusing and observational. That's how it all began. Okay, well, I'm not sure how much of that exactly applies to your next choice, but we're staying in the world of comedy of a certain vintage, and you might well recognise one of the voices involved here. Hey! Hey! Hello? The flying low? Hey! You can always tell it's going to rain when they come this far up river, you know. How do you do? Are you putting it around that I'm balmy? <laughs> no. Well, is it him? Uh, is it you? I don't want any. He doesn't want any. <laughs> right. How much are they? How much? <laughs> no, he's not. He's not. Somebody's putting it around that I'm balmy. Did you want to keep it a secret? <laughs> <laughs> I think you've got a good case if you can find out who it is. Okay, no mistaking Roy Castle there, but Georgie, who were the other blokes and what were they on about? Uh, this, in my humble opinion, is the greatest comedy sketch ever made. And you are talking to a dyed-in-the-wool Morecambe and Wise fan. And as most people will say, oh, the greatest comedy sketch is Grieg, Piano Concerto, or it's the two Ronnies, Four Candles. No, the greatest comedy sketch in the world is the Animals in the Box sketch. Yeah, it was indeed Roy Castle. Eli Woods, our Eli, was the other stooge. And then, well, it was originally done by a comic called Jimmy James. And then that role was later taken on by James Casey, who was related to Jimmy James and was a very prolific radio comedy producer. And I first saw this on The Parkinson Show when Roy Castle was a guest and they brought James Casey and Eli on and they did this and it is utterly surreal and they used to tour this round the music halls and working men's clubs and whatever. The basic premise is that, as I remember it, either Jimmy James, but James Casey's the one I know. And he stood in the middle and he comes on with Eli. And if you remember Eli Woods, he's about eight foot tall and as thin as a pencil. I was going to say, in the surviving recordings of it, his face barely fits into the frame. He's that tall. <laughs> it's just... I mean, they're comic to look at as well because you've got James Casey in the middle with the suit and the fag on constantly. You know, talking about smoking on television, he's he's chaining it all the way through. Eli, like I say, is like a streak of bacon. I mean, he's just, you know, up and down. Oh, that gormless look and stuttery voice that he used to do. And they come on to the music and... <laughs> That's not the kid's music. He needs something more up-tempo. <laughs> Eli. It's just like, no, I don't think so. Then Roy Castle comes on in this oversized brown map and a hat. And he's got a shoebox, a white shoebox under his arm. Just a plain, nondescript box with a lid. And then what unfolds is this sheer surrealism. There is apparently a lion in the box that's been given to Roy Castle from the African people where he's been travelling and it was a present from the African people and he's got it in the box and then there's elephants in the box there's giraffes in the it's just and the interplay between the three of them is extraordinary and it's just it's got great lines in it but it's so surreal and it starts with Roy Castle comes on and he's going hey Hey, 
Hey, and James Casey or Jimmy James, they're flying low tonight. And it's just, it's just, and this has now become, this little interchange has now become a recognised way of greeting myself and Louis Bath. This is how we greet each other. One of us will say, are you putting it about I'm balmy? And the other one replies, no, why did you want to keep it a secret? That's the kind of opening big gag of this sketch. And that's now how we greet each other when we see each other. But I saw this on Parkinson with my dad and it was a case of I was allowed to stay up late if I could keep awake and watch Parkinson. And I was utterly enthralled by this thing. And years later, it's now, you know, you can find it. It's about, there's various versions on YouTube. But a good friend of mine, John Foster, previously of BBC Tees, who can also quote this sketch. But he sent me the version of that Parkinson, which has got the whole thing in it with Roy Castle telling some fantastic stories. And then, and he was just so talented, Roy Castle. And he's another one that I fear will get forgotten in the mists of time. Yes, and he did so much because I was just trying to make a list of what he should be remembered for. I didn't even think of the two things that should be the most obvious to me personally, which were, he's in the first Dalek film. He's also Mm -hmm. in Dr. Terror's House of Horrors playing with Tom. Bobby Hayes' big band. So, you know, that's yeah. three things I just thought of first. But I was thinking of all the amazing things he did and thinking he's only known for repeatedly breaking the tap dancing trumpet playing yeah. record and record breakers. But even that, that is quite an astonishing thing to be known for. To have had this incredible. incredible career variety and then somehow just be told you're going to present this programme about facts and figures for children with two not even secret fascists. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And somehow to become, somehow for that to run for so many years, to become so known for it. And then for his health campaigning, when he barely had enough energy to you know, yeah. do anything. What an incredible man. And he should be. I think the problem is there's too many things to celebrate him for, but he should be more celebrated. He should be more celebrated because he was a proper all-round entertainer. He could play multiple instruments. He could tap dance brilliantly. He could sing. He could act. He could present. He was great at comedy. Obviously, he's in Carry On Up the Kyber. And he's brilliant in that. And then there's this. He toured for years as one of the Stooges with Eli and Jimmy James doing this incredible sketch, which they just kept working on and developing and adding to. And I think at its longest, it was about 17 minutes. So if they were booked to do a 15 to 20 minute spot, they would do the full thing. And there is, as legend would have it, one night at the Glasgow Empire, English comics did not go down well. This was not going down well. And they ripped through it and just went and did it in about five and got off to the sound of their own footsteps, as did many an English comic at the Glasgow Empire. And as legend would have it, the next act on was the American singer Slim Whitman, who hearing that nothing was going on on the stage and thinking he had another sort of 10 minutes came out of his dressing room as the three of them trudged past him in the wings and said, what's going on? To which Jimmy James said, you are. And he's like, they're in just like his vest, you know, ain't got his shirt or anything, just belted onto the stage. (laughs) And there are all kinds of versions of it, but I think in its full height of surrealism, it's pushing 20 minutes. And you just think, this is the kind of stuff that Vic, it's Mike's Python. It's the goodies. It's Vic and Bob. It's just, they take you into this surreal world where it's utterly plausible to them. It's mad. 
and I just adore it. I just think it's I think it's wonderful. Well, I was looking into the background of it. They did find out apparently. I've no idea if this still exists, but the first television performance that they did of it was on something called The Big Show on the opening night of Time Tease. So our mutual friend Bob Fisher, there's already a cloud of dust where he was. He's sprinting the city roads. <laughs> right, hand it over. They seem to have done it a few times on television. I do wonder if when they did it on Parkinson, they might have been afraid there was an emu in the box and it might have gone. <laughs> Possibly. There is a version as well where Roy Castle isn't playing the dude with the box. Roy Hudd is. Yes, Roy Hudd yes. did it occasionally as well. That stooge sometimes changed, but I think it was always R. Eli with Jimmy James or James Casey. James Casey is quite interesting as well, because as an impresario and producer, mm. he played a large part in discovering Hinge and Bracket, Les Dawson, yeah. allegedly Ken Dodd. But I will say he also discovered the Clithero kid, which is a huge mark <laughs> against him in my book. <laughs> but he, yes, he did. He did a lot of radio comedy up at Manchester, didn't he? And I think, was he Jimmy? He wasn't Jimmy James's son. I've got a feeling he was his nephew. They were definitely related in some Way. Mm, they were related, yeah, and he But I, I think I read the, the Wikipedia write up about that and left even more confused than the <laughs> And I think Eli was related in some way as well. Yeah, that made it even more confusing. Yeah, Eli's related too. I just adore it. I just adore it. It is with my comedy historian hat on and that my made up job that my husband always says it's a made up job. That's when I do get a bit excited about things and go, look, look, look how comedy progressed. The animals in the box sketch python vic and bob surrealist comedy i can trace the line right and that's when i kind of get proper geeky and go look look this is where it started and that influenced that and that influenced that and that yeah but i, I would love to see someone like vic and bob this with uh, i don't know charlie higgles do the animals in the box sketch i'd love to see them do that okay well i mean it's obvious you're a huge fan of the the animals in the box sketch but i don't imagine you were quite as big a fan of it as you were of a certain early 80s comedian on bbc one now paul squire esquire <laughs> Hey, Michael, did you hear about the tramp that was arrested for stealing perfume? What are they charging with? Fragrancy. <laughs> hey, Jane, I've just found a new labour-saving device for mowing the lawn. What's that? You sprinkle a bottle of whiskey over and it comes up half-cut. <laughs> Paul, what do you get if you cross a grass seed with Greta Garbo? Something that wants to be a lawn. <laughs> hey, Paul. Do you know the result of a furniture maker's football match? It ended in a draw. <laughs> hey, Daniel, I've just had all the negative electrons removed from my body. Are you sure? I'm positive. <laughs> Okay, the opening there of BBC TV's Paul Squire Esquire, who we have mentioned on here before, but Georgie, I believe you're actually a member of his fan club. Don't, I was, I was. And when you were asking me for topics for this and I said Paul Squire and you said, well, we have talked about him before. So I went back and I listened to that particular episode and the person who chose him wasn't wildly complimentary. <laughs> So I thought I would go onto YouTube and I would revisit the thing that made him an overnight star. And that was the 1980 Raw Variety performance. They're quite right. It was just bloody awful. 
<laughs> but at the time, as a 10-year-old, thought this was marvellous. And yes, he then was catapulted into primetime mainstream telly. And he was everywhere for a bit and then disappeared without a trace. And he did have, P.S. it's Paul Squire and Paul Squire Esquire. And they were big primetime telly shows. And I joined his fan club. You've got to forgive me. I was 10, 11 years old at the time. <laughs> I was member 101 and you got a little membership card, a little laminated membership card. And my dad said that he thought I was the only member and they wouldn't start at one because that would just look sad. So they started at 101 (laughs) to make it look a bit better. And then I said, no, I'm not. I can't be. I'm not the only one because they matched me up with as a pen pal with a girl who's a... (laughs) who's a girl of a similar age who lived in Glasgow so I said to my dad there must be at least two of us in the fan club because I've got this pen pal now in Glasgow who also likes Paul Squire and I can't remember how on earth because there was no internet then so where I wrote to I wrote off somewhere I somehow found a management company or something I wrote off and they came back and said well, you can join his fan club didn't cost anything they didn't charge you he got a signed picture and this that and the other and he had an album out called Heritage which I have and he sings things like The Hungry Years. And he had a single, which you could only get through the fan club, and it was Nickels and Dimes. Which isn't even on Discogs. I wasn't. The album <laughs> is, is where not? I found out he covers Ben and I write the songs amongst other yes! I am what I am as well, which I think oh. he missed the meaning of that slightly. Yeah, I think he probably did. I mean, it was, yes, it's an extra, I used to play it a lot. But you see, then I loved all that showbiz variety, razzmatazz. Sassy Night, big shows. And my dad did as well. And I was saying how I watched the Animals in the Box sketch with my dad. And he would always say, oh, leave them laughing, finish on a song. And it's not a show without dancers. And I loved all that. And I wasn't, I think I was a little bit too young for alternative comedy. I didn't quite connect with it. I still loved Morgan Wise and the two Ronnies and Mike Yoward or whatever it might be, you know. And I wasn't allowed to watch the young ones because I was 10 or 11, you know. I was a bit, I was just that bit too young, really, to connect with it. I caught up with it later in the later 80s. But at that point, I still loved the Royal Variety Show. And so when he came on, I thought this was marvellous. I re-watched it because it's on YouTube. And having listened to that previous podcast where someone picks Paul Squire and says it was terrible, they're quite right, it was. It wasn't terrible in as much as he was bad. He was very polished. He had a nice voice. He started and ended on a song. He did some impressions. He did some gags. You know, he blew them away. He was the new young comic that stole the show that night. But some of the material is dodgy. He does a gag about two blokes and infers that they're gay but doesn't say so and does the whole limp wrists. And then he had the nerve to cover I am what I am. And then he had the nerve to cover I am what I am on the album. But he's doing the whole, you know, oh, and the licking the finger and wiping the eyebrow and all that terrible, stereotypical, oh, oh, they're, you know, I think they might be together type of thing. Yeah. But then I thought, oh, well, it was 1980, wasn't it? And everyone was roaring laughing at it and then when I think about some of the jokes that Marty Kane did back and I adore Marty Kane but I think about some of the material that she did back in the day on like Real Tappers and Shunters I mean whoa you'd be 
cancelled within an inch of your life for doing stuff like that now. But God bless her, she wouldn't have done that now. So you've got to set things in the time that they were. Oh, yes. And without going into a whole big debate about it, one thing I will always point out, as much as I might wince at certain comedy in the past, it is also true, they mentioned the early alternative comics, a lot of them back in the 80s, because that was the right on stance, did do a lot of jokes about people having their hands cut off for stealing. Yeah. These things on both sides evolve, I think it's fair yeah, to say. It. It's good that they evolve and people mm. demanding a return to that do worry me because, you know, I don't quite understand why. But no, no. things do change and it isn't always right to hold the past by no. present standards. I don't think so because it's the past. I wouldn't want it to return but I don't want to deny it ever happened because the evolution of it is what fascinates me about comedy. We can't celebrate where we've got to if we don't know where we've come from. It needs to be there. Don't try and deny it happened. But yeah, when I watch it now, I think, oh dear. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, at least we've got cancelled Paul Squire. But I want to know more about this single that apparently officially doesn't exist. Right, <laughs> Somebody's cancelled that from this Someone's cancelled that. Well, I can only assume it wasn't commercially available, whereas the album was. Because the only way I have this is because I was a member of a fan club. And you got it with your little laminated member 101 and me mate up in Glasgow 102 and according to my dad there was only the two of us possibly Paul's wife's mum I imagine it's not on Discogs because it wasn't exclusive to just people in the fan club do you even remember what the B-side was or did it even have a B-side yeah it must have had a B-side because it's a proper vinyl 45 single it's in the mum's loft with the album Heritage he was very much what I call a my wife, my mother-in-law, my suit comic, you know. They're the three things that bam, 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 you know. Or do you like the suit, small checks and all that. And the mother-in-law and the wife wouldn't let me come out tonight and all that. And he was, for a time, popular enough to, well, have his own fan club. You know, I think well, yeah, these me. things get disregarded too easily. I think a good measure of how popular he was was, I have mentioned this before, but along with people like Bruce Foxen from The Jam and Plastic Patron, he was somebody that Lee and Herring used to mention a lot because they had... <laughs> A weird, not necessarily a sneering obsession, but, you know, a kind of, like, comically bemused obsession with sort of short-stay celebrities who, with the best men in the world, looked like they couldn't understand what they were doing there. Not couldn't believe their look. No. Were, like, kind of, I don't quite know what I'm doing. I don't quite know what I'm doing. Well, yeah, it was a classic tale of... And they did this with Bradley Walsh and Joe Pasquale. They did, where, yes. Where yeah. they were suddenly like, oh, wham, and then, bam, they had their own show. And they were just thrust into the limelight. Here, have your own show. And they're like rabbit in the headlights. I always think with that, because it was called He's Pasquale, I'm Walsh. I used to work in a boutique and over the road was a card shop. We were in a shopping precinct. And the woman who ran the card shop was obsessed with Joe Longform. Utterly obsessed. And would travel all over to his concerts. And she got him to sign just above her hip actually with Biro on her skin. And then she had it tattooed over. So she had Joe Longthorne's signature, his autograph, tattooed sort of just above her hip. And I always thought it would be very funny to have tattooed, he's Pasquale, I'm Walsh, <laughs> one on each boob. <laughs> thought that would be, <laughs> would be a talking point if I pulled a fella back at the time. <laughs> I just 
wondering how Bradley and Joe would feel about that. I'm sure they'd be delighted. I'd love, I'd love to be able to say, I've named my breasts after you boys. I never did. I hasten to add, I never did. But I thought about it for a fleeting moment for comic effect and then realised that it would be far too permanent as a gag. To, it would mean nothing a few years later. OK, well, that'll push. You could have practised tattooing that on your next choice. You would set yourself back a fair amount of money on eBay these days, but you could at least have had a go. Here's Pepper and Friends, they're setting the trends. Here's Jasmine, she's new and Gail makes two. They're up to have fun. Pretty Pippa's got lots of things to do and lots of friends. Here's Mandy and Penny too. There'll be a fashion sensation on a special occasion. The fun never ends with Pippa and friends. Okay, and thank you for pointing me in the direction there. It's a fully restored hi-fi version of there of the Pippa Dolls advert. Georgie, who was Pippa? Oh, I loved Pippa dolls. They were like tiny Barbies or Cindy's. They were little dolls. Pretty, they were very pretty. Combable hair and lots of outfits. And there was hundreds of them. I mean, there wasn't just Pippa. It was Pippa and friends. And I had them. I think I had them all. There was Gail and there was Jasmine. And she had a boyfriend called Pete. And I really, really have a horrible feeling that mine went the way of the car boot sale. And I had a look on eBay and there was a bundle of four with clothes going for about 390 quid. And I was like, no, you're joking. So when I go up into mum's aforementioned loft looking for my Paul Squire album, I will say, did we get rid of my Pippa dolls? Because I literally had loads and I had the pink car. I had every... I, I liked them better. I don't even think I had a Barbie. No, I didn't have a Barbie. I had Cindy's, but I liked Pippa the best because Pippa was portable, you see. You could. She was much more pocket-sized and you could carry her about with you and her friends. And I had a little vanity case, a proper one that said Pippa on it. It was proper merch. It was purple. And you could put them all in this case and carry them about with you. Bundle her and her mates into this case and various bits of clothing. So if we were going out to Nana and Grandad's for the day, I was like, I'd take my Pippa dolls with me so I could play with my Pippa dolls. It was much more portable because they were just so dinky and they were just all the nationalities of the world. And Jasmine was sort of dressed like a geisha girl, really. She was extraordinary. She's just... When I look at it now, and look at the stuff on YouTube, I think, oh, that wasn't very appropriate, was it? <laughs> I was going to say, that advert does lead up to a wedding, as though that's the most important thing Pippa could do, which oh, yeah. did take me aback, even by the standards of the time. I will say, actually... Pippa was made by Palatoy. So technically, when a doll was forced to marry Action Man, which did happen quite a lot when I was oh, growing yeah. up, oh, it yeah. should by rights have been his Palatoy stable mate, Pippa, not Cindy. It should have been Pippa. The sizes were wrong, you know, totally. Pippa came up to Action Man's knee or something, didn't she? She was tiny. I did have an Action Man so I could marry him off to various dolls. I mean, he was quite the bigamist, my Action Man. He belonged to my uncle uncle who's 10 years older than me so he would sort of pass things down to me as he grew out of them so I had various cars and things and I got his action man but one of the hands had come off so this action man had been hurt in action bless him and he got one hand 
and one outfit because my uncle hadn't bothered, you know, he just wanted action, man. So he was just in the fatigues he came in. You have just made me think of something I would love to see again, which is, you know, when Culture Club were at their absolute height? Yeah. That year, Boy George was on Pebble Mill at one. I can't remember who the other guests were looking at the, the big toys this Christmas. Oh, what um, are those? There's an action <laughs> man where the hand came off and Boy George said, I'll give it to Mr. Andropov. <laughs> What do you think of the small... Because, you know, Andropov was basically, like, sort of crawling and spluttering and saying, please give me the dignity of letting me go. You know, and they made him premier. The small window of time that that joke could have happened in is astonishing that it actually Isn't happened. It? And I don't think it was planned either, because it had that classic Boy George waspishness to it. <laughs> That's such a staple of radio and TV, isn't it? Let's look at what toys are going to be popular this Christmas. <laughs> if you find Boy George, you're asking for comments like yeah, that. But I do think it? marrying Action Man to Paper Stroke Cindy or whatever shows a positive imagination because I would prefer to see a crossover where Pippa was not even in the space costume. Pippa was in the Panzer Commander outfit <laughs> fighting the intruder. Yeah. Well, the only reason I ever did marry anybody off because I wasn't particularly bothered about the wedding bit not like some children I did play weddings with Cindy and Action Man or some of my stuffs and fluffs you know so that Bear would marry Koala or something like that the only reason I did that is so that I could DJ at the reception afterwards I used to <laughs> <laughs> play Paul Squire singing I am what I am I am yeah and now it's time for Cabaret quite clearly it was the early stirrings of me wanting to be a broadcaster and I wanted to be because I would play Bear's wedding reception. Wasn't bothered about the ceremony. Wasn't into all the dressing. I just wanted to do the reception. So what I would do is I'd get my mum to make a Dairy Lee sandwich for me. And I'd cut it into tiny triangles and put it on a paper plate. And then I'd line up. You know how, I don't know, maybe other people didn't do this. My grandma would go on coach trips over to like the Hook of Holland or Calais or whatever. And they'd go over. But she'd bring me back, dreadfully inappropriate. But she And I never opened them. I just liked the bottles. She'd bring me back miniatures of exotic booze as a present. So I'd have the bowls, you know, the blue and the creme de menthe, the vivid green and tiny little, tiny little bottles of Drambuie. None of them ever opened. I just adored the... But I'd Line them up as the bar. And then I'd get like a tiny Mr. Kipling's, one of those individual Victoria sponges. That would be the wedding cake. And then I'd DJ at the (laughs) wedding, (laughs) at like Pippa and Pete's wedding or Cindy and Action Man's wedding. And I'd get a torch and I'd get a load of Quality Street wrappers and I'd do the colours and I'd get the record, our record player, and give it Paul Squire nickels and dimes for their first dance or whatever. (laughs) I did, honestly... Saturday afternoons was Bear's wedding reception, just so I could DJ at the reception. I've just seen there were over 30 different Pippa dolls, like you say, but they all had variations on the same three mm. head moulds with different colours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they seemed very exotic to me. Like I said, you know, there was Gail and there was Jasmine. And it, was like, it was like a Benetton advert. It was, <laughs> it was all 
they were marvellous. Because Cindy was just Cindy. It was either long blonde hair or shoulder length blonde hair Cindy, short haired blonde Cindy or dark haired Cindy, which I have and was about to go the way of the car boot. And I quickly did a Google search and went, oh, no, she's not going anywhere because brunette Cindy's are much more rare. I do think actually, because we are in, you know, the immediate aftermath of the Barbie movie, which I loved, I thought was brilliant. There's every possibility somebody will do something with Cindy. I was thinking, I don't think they'll do a Pippa movie because I have a nasty feeling it would turn out like, you know, like one of those British comedy films where 90 seconds in, you're thinking, this feels really flat and empty. <laughs> yeah. And it feels like there's nobody in it apart from the cast. And then Alan Carr would be in it. And then two and a half weeks later, if you're in the chat, I was on the mention, you go, oh, don't. Yes, this is it. No disrespect to Pippa, but I think that is how it would turn out. It's quite fitting, really, I think. Yeah, she's not, you know, she's not anywhere near as well known. And there is a fondness and people go, oh, yeah, with Cindy. But you say Pippa dolls to them and they go, what? No, I've got a clue what you have. It's a tiny, tiny little doll. Well, I think people might be even more like to say, what about your next choice? Which, ironically, is something you might actually be playing with your Pippa dolls while you were watching. The first comedy with Pig in the Middle. so far. Okay, a bit there from Pig in the Middle, ITV 1980-83. Georgie, it sounds like you have some mixed feelings about this. Well, I do, because I've described it as a dreadful ITV sitcom. I remember watching this 1980 to 83. So we're back in that period when I'm sort of 10 to 13. But I don't remember. I don't remember the later series because it had Dinsdale Landon in it. And he left after the first series. But I only remember him. So I must have given up on it after the first series. So I was about 10. And I think back then I thought it was dreadfully sophisticated because it was about a man having an affair with Lisa Goddard. But he was married to Joanna Van Giesen, who was in Duty Free, and she was the one having the affair. But in this sitcom, she was being cheated on. And in a kind of way, he always seemed to be sort of thwarted in his attempts to have it away with Lisa Goddard. So I never, I seem to remember that he was trying to have an affair with her and she lived next door. But they never quite, you know, got it together. But reading about it, I have a feeling that they did. But it must have been done either in such a way that it wasn't explicit or I was 10 and it went over my head. I don't. No, but in some ways it was a sort of precursor to butterflies really but nowhere near as good because it was an ITV sitcom oh, possibly they put the later series on after I went to bed I'm not sure but I do remember Dinsdale Landon had a catchphrase and I remember laughing at that a lot because it, it seemed incredibly rude at the time he would say hell's tits a lot if anything went wrong and it was something that you know we ended up sort of saying in the playground at 10 it was like the rudest words you could possibly say someone said that on the telly last night um but actually it was awful really I mean it was again it was another one a bit like it was all a bit nudge nudge wink wink always trying to have it off with Lisa Goddard there was it was actually about 
just about someone having an affair and there was no repercussions or emotion or upset about what actually was going on. It was more a bit of kind of, oh, are they going to do it this week? Oh no. Again, something has thwarted them. So unlike butterflies, it had no extra layers at all. Well, I think you're right about it being a bit racier. I don't think it actually went that far because it looks to me like, I mean, because a lot of it revolves around parties full of bored couples. So the obvious (laughs) implication is they know supposed to be wife swapping parties but they suddenly remembered they were on itv and couldn't do it you know it looks <laughs> as though they've gone to the edge of doing stuff and pulled back so that tallies what you're saying about always being thwarted and they never mm. quite have an affair but as you mentioned you know there is some language in it should we say and you know yeah. some quite racy storylines and not even racy in the way somebody like kelly monteith would have done you know where it's kind of like right on racy like quite, oh, i loved quite kelly monteith i loved that show borderline unpleasant racy yeah, but yeah. it's interesting that I hadn't realised until I looked it up. The time slot it was in, people have forgotten this now. You know, there was the one later on the Sunday night where you got the real sort of edgy comedy on ITV, whether it was Clive James on television or, or indeed Agony, as we mentioned earlier, yes. or Spitting Image. Spitting Image. There yeah. was an earlier evening comedy slot around eight thirty on a Sunday night where they put stuff that was a bit too outside the limits for the usual post Coronation Street one in the week. Mm. The main one that you got there was nobody remembers this now bless me father with Arthur Lowe where he was oh. a, a priest who liked well smoking and gambling and yeah, so on and you know, a drink. was a decent man of the cloth but still liked to sneak off for a swift half and you know <laughs> That was well loved, that, but I think had it gotten out in a different time slot, it might have gone very differently. But I think that's exactly what they did here, was they tried to make it as nudge, nudge, hey, hey, this could be you too, as they could. And probably most people watching were thinking, I wish I was him, stroke her. Well, yes. I mean, I should imagine that most of the male population at the time did wish that. He was married to Joanna Van Geesen, and he was trying to have it away with Lisa Goddard. I mean, talk about having your cake and eating it. And yet, in the the opening titles, he turns into a cartoon pig, so. Yes. <laughs> and I don't think it's meant as a, you know, kind of, oh, he's a sexist pig thing. I think it's just the saying he looks like a pig. Yeah. But again, you see, it was, and I do remember it being a Sunday night. And I think I have fond memories of it because it was probably, I say fond, I have memories of it because it was probably the last thing I was allowed to watch if it was on at 8.30 before I had to go to bed to go to school. And you had that terrible Sunday night feeling didn't you? So it's kind of kind of like mixed messages. I enjoyed it because I felt a bit kind of grown up watching it. But also it was like, oh, school tomorrow. Well, isn't that why everyone loved That's Life? Because it was a bit of, well, I can't say a bit of silliness. It was all the hard hitting stuff as well. But mm. it was like a bit of irreverence. Yes. Before you Sunday had to go night. to school stroke oh, yes. work yeah, the next yeah. day. Yeah, it was. Absolutely. It's a very hard balance Sunday night telly because the country is full of people going, oh, the weekend's over and you need that uplift. But it's interesting that you'd say about the opening titles and he does turn into a pig and I'd never thought of oh it means he's a sexist pig but it was yet another ITV sitcom that has the name that is a saying so you've got pig in the middle piggy in the middle is the saying really isn't it and when you think about ITV sitcoms they're all sayings bless this house man about the house only when I laugh rising damp ITV sitcoms were always that invariably and so something that Bob Fisher and I used to do when I used to go on his show on BBC Tees is we'd make up ITV sitcoms and it's a great game me and Bob being me and Bob 
we didn't just make up names. We started casting them and saying what time, which ITV region would make them and what time they'd be on. So our favourite was My Giddy Aunt, which at one point people were actually texting into the show saying, you have made this sound so plausible that I've actually gone on to network to see if I can buy the DVD box set of something you've made up, but you've made it so plausible that we actually think, no, they're not making this up. They've remembered this. My Giddy Aunt, there you go, that's an expression. It's about a woman who is well into her sort of 60s or 70s and has been chucked out of her care home for being disruptive because she's so naughty. And she's played by Pat Coombs. And she's her only living relative where she's got to go and stay is with her nephew. And that's played by Robin Asquith, who would like a wild old time himself, but invariably has to keep going and bailing his giddy arm out of various scrapes and hilarious situations. All the time whilst on and off romancing the local barmaid in the pub played by Carol Hawkins. And it would have been made by Yorkshire Television and it would have come on about half eight on a Monday night. I mean, this is the layer of detail that me and Fisher went into. It seems utterly plausible, doesn't it? It absolutely does. I mean, I'm still amazed that it turns out I actually made up when I was very young, My Awful Wedded Wife, which sounds like it should have been an ITV sitcom. And I think I convinced myself it was, but it wasn't. Nobody's ever done that. I'm not suggesting they make it now. Well, I'm really hoping that you don't know the most bizarre fact about Pig in the Middle, which is there was an American adaptation. No, was there really? Oh, Madeline with Madeline Kahn, where they tweaked it slightly. They made the pig a woman. Also, it wasn't quite about what she was trying to have an affair. It was like she was trying to rope her disinterested husband into different ways of trying to spice things up, which is the phrase du jour in those days. So, you know, racy from the American sitcom, they visit, yeah. you know, not quite fetish clubs, but you know what I mean. <laughs> I am more familiar with that than I am with Pig in the Middle, because again, watching every second of Channel 4 when it first started, where they bought every American sitcom from the last couple of years that nobody else would touch, like Mama Maloney, Square Pegs, everything like that, that wasn't quite Cheers or Kate and Ali, and they put it in the slightly different time slot. Yeah. And yes, they showed all of O'Madlin, and I don't think all of it was shown in America, but we got it all over Fantastic. <laughs> Fantastic. I miss those early days of Channel 4 when it, was, it felt very cool and exciting because they did have all these American imports. And they had that red triangle thing, didn't they? I am obsessed with the red triangle, mainly because most of the things that were shown in that slot were neither the sex nor violence that people were looking for. No. It was always about political prisoners or whatever. Oh, but it was such a great sort of PR device, wasn't it? Where if we show something that's a bit racy or a bit violent, we're going to put a red triangle warning up on the screen. So, of course... Much like when they put that P for product placement now, all that does is alert me to, oh, well, where's the product then? I'm, I'm actively looking for it. And it was the same with the red triangle. All oh, right, it's going to be a good bit now. Come on then. And then you're like, oh, is that it? I was a bit disappointed. OK, we'll move on to your last choice now, which has got very little to do with the red triangle, absolutely nothing to do with pig in the middle. And we'll find out why shortly. Turn on to a new season of entertainment on BBC One. Yes, fans, I'm back on BBC Three with the most expensive series ever to come out of this bureaucratic dump. 
Roland wrecked the series. It's brilliant. Yeah. Hi. So you want to know about the new Lenny Henry series, eh? Well, I'm going to tell you anyway. It's not like the last series. It's a different story every week. I'll be here, come what may, kicking off the new season of Telly Addicts. And then I'm going to come whirling back with the new Late Late Breakfast show. So don't miss them. Either of them. What should we talk about, my lovelies? What have you been doing with yourselves? I'll tell you what I've been doing with myself. <laughs> On second thoughts, I won't. <laughs> I do hope you'll be able to join me and our contestants for a new series of Every Second Counts, because we've got some super prizes waiting to be won. So join us all and play along at home for Every Second Counts. Uncle Les is going to pull a funny face. <laughs> Here's another one. One's brand new season of entertainment. Okay, at the time of recording, I've got no idea what I will have used as a clip there because every single, every single new season lineup trailer I've found so far has a bastard huge free person no. in it. Either that or the one that had no narration and it's just music. There will be something in there, but Georgie, why am I looking ahead to this autumn's highlights on? BBC One. Oh, absolutely. Now, I don't know if every other family called it this, but this is what it was called in our house. It isn't one particular show. It's the concept of the best shows were brought back in the autumn after the summer break. You've got the darker nights, the nights were pulling in, you're heading towards Christmas. And it was known in our house as Good Winter Telly. And, oh, lovely, the good winter telly's coming back. And I was telling my husband about this, and he said, oh, we didn't call it that, but I understand that we had the same sort of feeling. He said, but people still have that now. And I thought, well, yeah, they do. The other day they released the date that Bake Off starts again. I think we've got the date that Strictly is coming back. But I'm talking about that anticipation of the new BBC and ITV schedules, that particularly for Saturday nights, and what stuff would we put up against each other. And I'm talking you know pre-video recorders as well I think my granddad coined the phrase in our family it basically just meant the generation game was coming back that's what he wanted he wanted the gen game it was that it was all that and ITV didn't really bother for a long time the BBC had the utter monopoly we're talking pre-channel 4 here as well so we're talking the days of Basil Brush and Doctor Who and Gen Game and then you'd have something like Mike Yarwood or Morecambe and Wise or the two Ronnies and then there'd be a drama there'd be Juliet Bravo or Duchess of Duke Street one of those and then that would probably take you to the news and then you'd have after the news match of the day and the aforementioned Parky and that was your proper golden age of good winter telly and don't been... forget the really important variant sometimes there will be the big film it was always oh, the yes. big film big film big film particularly getting towards christmas because they'd start rolling out films that were having their well what we now call terrestrial tv premiere but back then it was just a tv premiere because there wasn't anything else i mean itv didn't really start competing until game for a laugh came along really that was when they started when I mean, they had a go with that bruce forsyth big night out thing when he left the gen game and went to ITV and got the network together and again something I'm mildly obsessed with (laughs) (laughs) but of course Larry Grayson carried on very very successfully with the Generation Game and no one expected him to do that and made it his own I saw this lineup 
on Twitter the other day. Someone that I follow because I follow all those kinds of people. Obviously, of course I do because I, I love know this who it was. It was previous guest Steve Berry. Ah, and said, so we, I basically live in this schedule. Yes, we've got here. We've got Basil Brush at half past five. Doctor Who at six. Larry Grayson's Gen Game twenty five past six till seven twenty. Secret Army is seven twenty till ten past eight. Mike Yarwood in persons. Dallas. So we must be sort of early eighties. At 8.40. News at half past nine, just for 10 minutes. Match of the day at 9.40 and Parky at 10.40. I mean, why would you ever get up to change channel? I mean, they had the absolute monopoly, but it was an extraordinary lineup and it was anticipated and looked forward to well it was it was an absolute genuine phenomenon and i've got a couple of theories as to why that was and i don't think it was just limited to you know the big channels and their saturday evening schedules i think it went a bit wider but i think it's to do with it's people coming back after the summer back to work back to school already looking forward to the christmas holidays and they want a sense that festivities and time off are on their way and so that's why you get all this razzle dazzle in like Later years, you've got things like gladiators in that slot, obviously, which yes. I think are very much part of the same thing. I really think it's that. I think it's that it's not the same as I was trying to think of the sort of programme you would have got, you know, on a sort of hot Saturday evening in July, and it'd be... Seaside Special. Seaside Special or a Leo Sayer variety series never quite <laughs> took off or, you know, yeah. something like that. There'd be a more languid feel to it, a feeling that it didn't matter if you missed the start of it or the end of it or something like that. And then suddenly, it's must-watch TV come September. Everything is like that. I think that's a really key thing. And yeah. they always describe it as new season as well. Yes, as they if do. It was, it you know, say, the leaves are going to yeah. start coming off the trees now. Are you ready? Yeah, come Because back they couldn't inside. say, even in those days, they couldn't say Christmas is coming in September. No, but... no, but it was new season on BBC One. And it was very much right. Stop playing out now. The nights are drawing in. Come back in and gather around the telly, and this is what we've got for you. I'm not sure that over the summer people made it past about, you know, eight o'clock, really. I mean, you know, later on the schedule, you get things like, I suppose, was that when Alan Wicker was tried out as a chat show host? You know, the programme <laughs> might as well have just, like, broken loose of its moorings and floated away, and no one would have noticed. But... Saturday night schedules, like I say, as soon as September starts, you've got your start of them, you've got the end of them, you are not to miss anything no. in between the two, by law almost. Mm. But there's also two sort of things adjacent to it, which is Children's BBC. Children's ITV never really did this, but Children's BBC would have a new range of programmes when school started again in September. Yes. But there would always be one drama, I mean, the most famous one being The Box of Delights, but they did one every year, usually with a sort of spooky or sci-fi or supernatural twist. Yeah go right up to Christmas week. And so yes. you had that sort of excitement. But also, I have a genuine theory about this. Noel Edmonds, although he was on TV the rest of the year, his intensity in appearances would increase between September oh, yes. and Christmas Day when he suddenly oh, yeah. took the whole morning on top of the telecom tower. Absolutely. You know, he had yeah. telly addicts, he had whatever Saturday evening show was on that mm. point. They were a huge part of that as well. Oh yeah, as you went into the 80s, obviously, the Late Late Breakfast show. And then he came back a lot quicker than people remember yes because he had the Saturday Road Show Saturday Road Show which was it wasn't live and then of course the phenomenon that was Noel's house party and that took that whole winter telly thing well into the 90s because that was it was appointment viewing before anyone knew what on earth that dreadful buzz phrase was and telly addicts had that real sort of in opposition to all the razzle dazzle a sort of cosy winter draws on feeling Mm. because he had you know the chunky jumpers and it was like a sort of 
50s front room setting. Yes, it was. And it really it? felt telly. sort of like, yeah, it's autumn now. With- We're heading towards Christmas. And then, obviously, like you said, Christmas morning, they would wheel. We've got someone called Noel, whose birthday's near <laughs> Christmas. This is brilliant. Let's. He's all warm and cuddly in his big jumper and his beard. Let's get him out Christmas morning and make everyone cry while they're, you know, basting their turkey. It was, yeah, I mean, it was just, oh, God, it must be winter. They've wheeled Noel Edmonds back out again. He had another show called Time of Our Lives. He did, which I loved when there was really I young. loved that. Did you see a while back there was one on iPlayer? Norman Wisdom. Yes, it was fascinating because yeah. it predates the whole Norman Wisdom National Treasure thing. Noel gets really fed up with him deliberately overextending his act. Yes, like, he does. Comedy, you can see looking him. at his watch and like gestures to the floor manager and so on. You can he's see not having irritated. any of it. No, no, he's not. Because it's stealing focus from Noel. And I mean, and this is me saying it. You're talking to the girl who, at six years old, sat in front of Swap Shop, cross-legged in her pyjamas with her cornflakes. I watched the opening and one, decided that one day I wanted to work for the BBC. And two, I wanted to marry Noel Edmonds. And told my mum and said, that's the man I'm going to marry. Well, he's been three, three wives. I believe his current wife is the same age as me. So I thought I just missed out barely. I adored Noel. I utterly I really, I think history, well, he has done himself a disservice as well as history doing him a disservice. But as a presenter, very early on, he was absolutely brilliant. I mean, one of the reasons I wound up doing the stuff I did was that I love Swap Shop because when I say he showed you behind the scenes and interacted with the backroom boys, it wasn't in a nerdy geek. Way. It was a kind of, I'm interested, how do they make it where a picture of me goes really small and goes across the screen? Yeah. He'd, he'd go and find it's, out it and make jokes with them and yeah. then they do him in CFAX or whatever. Yeah, and you'd take the camera up to the gallery and I'm, I adored this. It was like, oh, this was like seeing inside the magical box, wasn't it? it was, this is how it worked. As a live television presenter, there was no one to touch him. Absolutely. I mean, extraordinary. You think about House Party and it didn't end well and it should have ended long before it did and if it had ended in its pomp you know and it should I think it should go down as an incredible piece of live broadcasting I mean what they did with MTV where they ended up in you know going live to people's living rooms back then that was an incredible feat of engineering and organisation they broke massive new ground in television and he was brilliant he was he had no cue cards he had no earpiece once he was out there he was floor managing it as well. I mean, he was totally in charge and he was brilliant at live television. Yes, that's absolutely it. Because I was going to say, whenever I see somebody now, bless them, they're doing their best with what they're handed. And, you know, yeah. is other people messing up? But, you know, you see somebody go, and the phone number should be coming up about where is it? Is it up yeah. yet? Is it up? You just think that Noel would have got some material no, out of on. that. Yeah, he would have done. One, he would have been on it. But if it had have gone wrong, he would have made it very funny and gone over to the camera and you'd have seen the cam or the person with the teleprompter or whatever it might have been and it would have been brilliant utterly brilliant but he would have been on it well I will say though in balance I have just had to go at modern presenters but looks unfamiliar is not about let's go back to the good old days it never is it never will be so <laughs> is there anything now that you would consider equivalent to good winter telly that's on now what wouldn't you miss I wouldn't miss Strictly personally. thank you I was hoping you'd say that yeah yeah it is I it- will probably get sticked for this but I love Strictly I love it 
I love it. And during the pandemic, God bless them for working out a way of putting Strictly on that autumn because I think we needed, if you like that kind of thing, and I do because I like proper entertainment on a Saturday night, and it is, it's proper family entertainment. There's sparkles and there's glitz and there's glamour and there's live music and there's a bit of humour and there's drama and, you know, Craig is the, you know, the villain and you've got with the panel, you know, they've all got their roles and it's done brilliantly and I've been very lucky enough to go and see it done live and it's fascinating and the crew are incredible and how they engineer it when it goes live and clear the floor of confetti cannons or whatever it might be while they run a VT and the next couple come on. It's like choreography is wonderful to watch yeah that autumn between lockdowns where they worked out a way of making all the dancers into a bubble and they pre-recorded all their group routines in one big go and I just wanted to say thank you it was like thank you for doing that because we needed that glitz and glamour and sparkle on a Saturday night particularly at that time but yeah, to me, that is good winter telly. And it's height, the X Factor on at the same time would have been, but that went on too long. But strictly, st- for me, it's still got it. Still got it. Well, I'm going to extend that thank you to the Strictly production team, but I'm also going to say it was missing, well, technically two things. It was missing somebody smoking and a pint. Well, yes. <laughs> Well, yes. I mean, to be fair, if you put a pipe in Claudia's hand and a G&T in Tess's hand, then I'd be happy as. <laughs> and then maybe Shirley playing darts, more Anton with a shove hate me board, and I'd be a very, very happy girl. And I think they would happily oblige. I mean, watching Tess and Claudia, I think they'd happily come out and do a Fred Truman impression and say it and end and... Instead of saying keep dancing, say I'll see Well, I can't really think of a better note to end on. <laughs> Georgie, it's been brilliant. Thank you. Thank you very much. I've adored it. It's been brilliant fun. Volume 2 by Tim Worthington, the story behind every album released by BBC Records and Tapes, from Play School Play On to Russell Grant's Zodiac Jukebox. Comedy, sound effects, show tunes, folk, singing soap stars, the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, and more albums of Birdsong that you ever knew was possible to exist. More details at timworthington.org. 